Welcome to The Sandbox with Justin Peters, connecting you to the ideas and tools to improve your life. Now let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome into The Sandbox. I'm your host, Justin Peters, and my guest today is Kristen Brandt, the co-founder and chief program officer at She's the First, which is an organization that is working to create a world where girls are safe and have equal rights. And at the end of 2019, She's the First had a presence in over 21 countries, had over 500 graduates in their partner programs, and has reached over 11,000 girls worldwide. And 2020 has brought even more success for She's the First, Kristen, and her co-founder, Tammy Tibbetts. The two of them can now call themselves authors as their new book, Impact, a step-by-step plan to create the world that you want to live in, was just released. Kristen came into the sandbox to discuss some of the key takeaways from her book, including defining your North Star, Band-Aids versus system solutions, and overcoming the shooters out there. This is an awesome episode for those who are looking to make an impact. I hope you enjoy my conversation today with the badass feminist, activist, self-defense instructor, world traveler, Kristen Brandt. Kristen, welcome into the sandbox. Thanks, Justin. I'm so excited. I'm excited too. Congrats on officially becoming an author. How does that feel? <laughs> it feels kind of crazy. The best part, this is so strange, but the best part that I found about being an author is actually um, like looking at the book itself is incredible, but actually seeing the book on a shelf and seeing my name on the spine of the book, that is the thing that gives me butterflies every single time it happens. <laughs> yeah. And you got this awesome cover. For those that aren't watching on YouTube, you can see the book up in the background. Um, but it's this its this beautiful, uh, bubbly yellow. It's easy, I think, to grab on the shelves. It's an excellent read. I'm really excited to talk a little bit about this. But let's, um, let's talk about the other name on the spine to start with as well. You co-authored this book. You co-author, or you co-founded an organization um, with I, what seems like your best friends now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Tammy and how you guys met? Yeah, I would love to. So as you hinted, Tammy and I, we did co-write this book. We also co-founded the organization She's the First. And Tammy and I met actually really casually more than a decade ago because we both won the same scholarship. And it was because we were both going into the communications fields. We won this really prestigious, honestly, scholarship for college um, for women in communications. We met through that and we connected on Facebook and then we didn't talk again um, for more than a year, at which point we had been connected on Facebook. And so I saw that she posted about this article about girls' education and early pregnancy. And the article actually blamed girls for getting pregnant. Um, And Tammy had a lot of a lot of thoughts about that and I did as well and she at the time she said she wanted to start a media campaign and was anyone interested in joining her and I immediately wrote back and as it turns out I was the only one who wrote back mm. uh, and so we launched she's the first in 2009 as a YouTube media campaign and as a way to crowdfund before crowdfunding platforms existed so the idea was watch this video, learn about girls' education and girls' rights, and then raise money with your friends to help solve the issue. Hmm. And then over the the course of the next decade, we 
grew She's the First into the organization it is today, which is, you know, we work in 11 countries around the world. We reach more than 12,000 girls a year. Um, we've been recognized internationally for our work. And a couple of years ago, Tammy and I looked at each other and decided it was time to write our book. So that's, that's where impact came from. Yeah. And why, what, was there something that triggered the, the want or the desire to write a book or had it just been a bucket list for you guys or what, what, what triggered you writing impact? Yeah. So we always knew that we had a book in us. We both went to school for journalism. We both worked in the magazine industry for a little while. We're strong writers and, and we just, we knew that it would come one day. We just didn't know what it was going to be about. So we actually, for a really long time, we actually had a, a top secret Google Drive folder where we would keep the names of future chapters uh, with just kind of ridiculous things that happened to us as we were running She's the First, things that we wanted to work into our story one day. Hmm. And we decided it was time when the 10 year anniversary of She's the First was, was coming up. And we actually did go out with a book proposal. We pitched a bunch of publishers on a book about She's the First and about the founding of She's the First. And it was universally rejected. They all came back and said, it's too inside baseball. You know, it's going to appeal to people who are really interested in nonprofits or social good startups, but it wasn't going to carry through for a more mainstream audience. And when we sat down to kind of rethink and think about what else we would want to write about if in fact there was another book that we had inside of us. The thing we kept coming back to was this question that we kept getting over and over and over again throughout our tenure at She's the First, which was that people would come up to us and they would say, you know, you've done so much in creating She's the First. How can I help? What can I do? to create a change or you know you started this this nonprofit from scratch how do i do that how do i find meaning in this way and so that was really the question that we realized we could answer and answer fairly well for a lot of people that you know frankly in day to day life we don't have the time to sit down with everyone who wants us to answer that question for them because it is so deeply personal. But in a book, you can get people to do that self-reflection. You can walk them through that process so that hopefully by the time they get to the other side, they've arrived at a conclusion. So that's really the question. If that's the question that you're asking yourself is how can I create a change in the world? That's what this book is, is meant to help you answer. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to explore some of the other concepts in impact and talk a little bit more about she's the first, but, but staying on Tammy for a second, uh, and mm -hmm. talking about other books, is it true that you guys wanted to originally write a book about your guys's relationship? Oh yeah. So one of the, <laughs> one of the other book concepts was a book that we were calling work wives and we call one another and have called one another our work wife for a very long time. And we, we had it all outlined out actually, but we didn't shop it around. We didn't end up um, trying to sell it. And that's because when we thought about what we wanted to be talking about in four years or five years, although our relationship is wildly meaningful to both of us, that wasn't what we wanted to stand on a stage and talk about. We thought that we could create 
more impact <laughs> uh, writing about writing about something that was of more service. But that said, our relationship with one another, and we'll both tell you this, like our relationship as co-founders is what really paved the way and laid the foundation for each of us in our romantic relationships. Like mm. we came to understand what conflict resolution looks like um, in a healthy way, how to really align your values with someone else in order to make the relationship work in the long term. And so we've learned a lot of really important lessons through working with one another and running an organization with one another. And I would say, honestly, if you're going to write a book with someone else, don't do it unless you have been working alongside that person successfully for the last decade. Because <laughs> for us, I, I can't imagine having written this book without Tammy. Um, it made the process so much easier, but that's because we already had a shared voice. We already know each other's strengths and weaknesses. I know what she's going to be too humble and too modest about so that I can brag about it. She's gonna do the same thing for me. We can really fill in for one another. And when we disagree, we already have systems in place to work that out. Um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't attempt to write a book. There's no one else in the world I would have written a book with. Yeah, which surprised me when I read in the book that, I mean, knowing the two of you on a surface level before I, I really dove into who you are, I thought you and Tammy just clicked right from the get-go, we're on the same path, everything was great. Uh, and in the book, you were talking about how you both had these insecurities around your leadership uh, and that you each protected your respective domains with her around the media piece to it and you around the international programs. Um, where was that in the um, uh, progression of She's the First and how did you guys overcome that? Yeah, so first we started She's the First young. I was 20 and Tammy was 23 uh, when we first started working on the idea. And that I think played into it because all of those insecurities that you work through as you're finding yourself as an adult, they were all there. And so as we became leaders and as She's the First took off and, and we were still quite young in that journey, we were, you know, we were kind of navigating how to deal with all of that together. And I think for a lot of people, when you're feeling unsure or insecure, or you are suddenly thrust into a leadership position, that doesn't always come out in really healthy ways. And so Justin, you're hinting around, we talk in the book about um, being really protective of our domains. And what that looked like was that in the early days of She's the First, Tammy was the only one profiled in the media for the most part um, because she was the one handling that part of the organization. And then meanwhile, I was handling our, our partner of, por sorry, our portfolio of partners. And I completely, like I didn't even let her talk to them mm -hmm. because we each had kind of these things that we owned and we weren't secure enough in our own leadership to be open to critique. And to have a real partnership or to be a good leader, you need to be open to critique. And so it took us a while to build enough trust in one another to trust the other person with the pieces of the organization that were under each of our domains, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally make, I, that, that totally makes sense to me. Um, and, and 
Tammy's super interesting. She lets off on some practices and some habits that she has. One that I really loved that she talked about in the book was writing a future letter to, or a letter to her future self uh, on New Year's Day every year. And she writes it in past tense. Like she's already accomplished the goals for those years. And I was like, wow, that's such a great practice. Has there anything else, uh, has there been anything else that, you know, a practice or a habit that you've watched Tammy do that you've picked up on and started doing yourself? Yeah. So, well, I think one of the things that makes us really strong is that we recognize the, the strengths of the other person and we've really come to rely on them. Mm. Um, so, there's this concept in psychology that I'm going to completely botch, um, but it's around our, our memory and the idea that you use kind of different parts of the brain to remember how to do things. So you're either actively remembering something or you have this kind of passive memory. So when you think about, for example, picking up the remote and turning on the television or even picking up your phone and putting in your passcode, you're not actively remembering how to use that device because your brain has stored it in this kind of back part of your brain. This is how this works. You're not, you don't have to actively think about it. Your, your muscle memory and your kind of passive brain are all working together to make this thing happen. And they say that after a while, your brain actually learns to outsource certain skills. And so you see this a lot, for example, in parents who have no idea how to work their TV. <laughs> and so something breaks and they call their kid, they, right? They have someone else that they have just decided they, like their brain has outsourced that. They're not figuring it out. Tammy and I have do this with one another where there are areas of the organization, areas of leadership where we know we can turn to the other person and she is going to be more effective at it than I am. Mm. And so that might be with certain HR situations. We know that one of us is better than the other at that. And so that's the person who's going to be called on to, to bring their skills. Um, if I am working on an email, I hate formal communication. I'm a super informal person. Um, I know that I can just draft something out and be done with it because Tammy is going to come in. She's going to make that better. Um, and so it's, it's not just that she has these habits or skills that I pick up. It's that in my work, I actually actively rely on those skills as if they were my own because they are that accessible to me and, and vice versa. Um, so I know, for example, she's super organized. She's great with timelines. Um, she is the project manager out of the two of us and I'm the people manager out of the two of us. And so we just kind of layer those skills onto one another in order to tackle whatever comes our way next. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, so jumping back into She's the First, um, first of mm -hmm. all, I'm really curious, where'd the name come from? That's a unique name. Yeah, so She's the First comes from the concept that we work with girls all around the world who are marginalized, who live in poverty. And the idea is that they can and will be the first in their families either to graduate from high school, to go to college, mm -hmm. to become the first doctor in their community. And it also resonates off of the fact that both Tammy and I are first generation college students. And so being a first is something that is really personal to us. And it's something that often isn't it's not celebrated in the way that it should be for people who are the first in these quote unquote 
smaller achievements. So maybe that is that you're the first person in your family to graduate from high school or to graduate from college um, or to get a job in a certain field or to speak a second language or whatever that thing may be. And what we find is that those are the first that are often overlooked. Um, and you, you don't get a ton of support for them, actually. A first-generation college student needs a ton of support in order to succeed. There's just so much you don't know. And so it's just the first we look to really recognize the effort that it takes to be the first in anything and to celebrate the ways that, that girls are breaking boundaries every day. Hmm. I love that. So you work internationally. Um, you work with um, partners that are local to those areas. What areas are you working in? And what problems, unique problems to girls are you working to solve in those areas? Yeah, so we have partners across Latin America, South Asia, West and East Africa. Um, and all of these partners are are working with us to ensure that girls are able to live within their full rights. We say that girls everywhere can be educated, respected, and heard, that they can access school and have ideally access to a quality education, mm. that they have a voice and that people will listen when they speak. And so those are those are the goals. And a lot of times we're, we're achieving that by working with our partners on mentorship programming, on strong sexual and reproductive health programming, and then on designing programs that are going to work for an individual girl's needs. Um, so in other words, rather than creating a program and expecting that a girl is going to come along and kind of fit herself into the program, that the program is going to actively work to understand the needs of the girls in it and in its community and uh, create the program around those needs. Hmm. So that's what we do. Um, and, you know, what we're, what we're really looking at is that even today, and this is prior to COVID, two thirds of the world's illiterate people were women. And we know that globally, including in the US, that girls are spending 40% more time doing chores than boys are, right? And so there are just these, these ways in which gender continues to hold us back and to hold all of us back because you know gender norms are really limiting for men and for boys as well. And so She's the First is really about working on how do we transform not just girls, but also the communities that girls live in all around the world to ensure that they have a pathway to determining their own future. And in the book, you talk a lot about, um, we're, we're going to talk about North Star, but but developing that North yeah. Star, maybe around some of your experience in the past. So is there was there a moment or an experience in, in your past that made you realize that you wanted to make girls' rights a priority? Yeah, so when I was growing up, and, and all the way through college and into the first few years of She's the First, if you had asked me why girls' rights were so important to me, I would have told you that it was because I grew up surrounded by women. Um, my mom had me young. She was 19 when she gave birth to me. And we grew up in the, for the first decade of my life, we lived with my grandparents and all of my aunts and my mom under the same roof. And so I was constantly surrounded by all this feminine energy. And then I you know, I went to college, I paid for college, got scholarships to go. Um, and those experiences combined, I would have told you 
that's why I believe so much in girls' rights, because I know the power of a female network. I know the ways in which girls and women can be strong and everyone should have access to this education. But what I realized going into my late 20s was that my experiences with men had also shaped this because my stepdad growing up and as well as a number of the, the men who kind of came in and out of um, different women's lives within my family were all abusive in some way. Not all, but many were abusive in some way. And it took until I was in my late 20s to actually be able to put that word onto it after therapy to be able to put that word onto it and to recognize that varying forms of emotional and physical abuse kind of dotted my childhood and my understanding of the relationships between women and men. And so this idea of you know safety of women and girls, this idea of being able to fully experience your own life without anyone else telling you or punishing you for going after your own goals was incredibly important to me today. Um, and that, that through line has stayed the same, but the way that I relate to my North Star has changed with my own understanding of my own experiences. And that's one of the reasons we say, when you think about the impact that you want to create in the world, when you think about your North Star, that, that vision of the world that really drives you, it's really important to link it back to things that move you personally, that are really important to you personally. And how you articulate that might change over time, but feeling that connection to it means that it's going to be something that motivates you forever and ever and ever, no matter how much the nuances might shift over time. Hmm. So, so we've teased around impact a lot. Um, we've talked about North Star. So I think it's worth um, defining what we mean by North Star. So creating, in the book, you lay out uh, what you call your impact plan. And it starts with this definition of defining your North Star. So what do you mean by North Star? Yeah, the North Star is the vision of the world that you want to see. And so what we tell people is, you know, if you're into a visioning exercise, close your eyes, um, think about a day 20 years in the future when the world's biggest problems, the problems that are most meaningful to you, they're all gone. And what does that world look like? That vision, that day that you can kind of hold in your head, what are, the, what are the news headlines? What are people talking about on the street? What looks different? What feels different? How are people interacting with one another? That vision of that day, that is your North Star. And that's because a lot of times, especially when it comes to social change, we try to work against bad forces. We try to, we see a bad situation or a situation that we feel is unjust or unfair and we push back against it. And we say, no, not like that. This isn't okay. I want to see something different. And that's important, but it's often not sustainable because anger is not sustainable. Hmm. Negative energy is not sustainable. But when you are fighting for something, when you can articulate and envision those changes that you are fighting for, that you are working toward, that is sustainable in the long run. 
because that makes you feel good. That gives you the positive motivation and reinforcement that you need to wake up day after day after day <laughs> and keep working for change. So I, I hear you. Um, this is a, I, I love the concept of North Star, but I think there might be some people, especially with, with the demographic that I target, the 20 somethings, they, there's so many things they're passionate about. You know, we have probably um, picked, you know, a half a dozen things at least throughout the last 10 years that we thought was going to be our North Star originally. But uh, maybe it was um, a media perception or somebody else pushing some of that on. So if, if they're doing this exercise, they close their eyes, they are thinking about 20 years from now, and they're not entirely sure what their 20 years looks like, what, what they want to make their central North Star. What advice would you give someone to help further define that? Yeah, a couple of things. So... First is when it comes to impact, there's often a lot of shame and guilt. And that is because the people who can look around them and identify what is broken and what is wrong with the world and what needs fixing mm. often see all of it, right? So just because you happen to be connected to one issue or two issues or three issues, doesn't mean you can't see all of the rest. I am hyper aware of climate change as an issue. I'm hyper aware of racial tensions in the US and the need for reparations. I'm hyper aware of the issues that the disabled community is facing, right? There are all of these, all of these issues that interweave and overlock and they all need addressing. And I think what is really important to remember is that no one person can take on everything and expect to be able to A, create meaningful change and B, keep doing that day after day after day. There is just no way. It, you are one person and we have to accept the limitations of being a single person. Mm. But what I truly believe is that if we all work toward our own North Stars and we recognize the ways in which they overlap and intersect and work together, then we can create this, this better world. So Justin, I know something you're really passionate about um, lately is like recycling and living zero waste and yep. really working toward a more sustainable planet, right? Yes. If, if we don't do that, there is no planet on which girls and women are going to be safe, mm. right? So our North Stars actually do interlock really well. And by the way, women and girls suffer the most in a world where climate change is happening and happening rapidly. And this is, you know, we could host a whole other podcast about the, the statistics and the, the stories about why that is, but these issues are, are incredibly interconnected. And when I say that I'm working for a world where all girls are safe and have agency and can create their own futures, well, I have to also acknowledge that if that girl happens to be black, happens to be disabled, she's going to face a whole other set of barriers before she can be safe and she can have agency to really define what her future is going to be. So all of this to say that working toward one North Star and one focus area, it allows you to say no to the guilt and the shame of feeling like you have to do everything while also allowing you to be intersectional in your approach. So, you know, I do donate to causes around racial equity in the US, mm. 
I do work to make sure that I'm living a, you know, I'm purchasing clothing from sustainable companies and I'm thrifting and right. I'm, I'm making efforts on those, um, on those issues, but those tend to be my actions that I'm, I'm doing like a recurring donation for, or I'm doing kind of smaller everyday actions that I can sustain over time. Whereas my big efforts, writing this book, um, working at Shoes the First, teaching self-defense, my biggest efforts are all aligned under my North Star. And those smaller efforts that are kind of interspersed across all of these intersecting issues, they're on the smaller side, but they're there because I work to be a good ally. And I, you know, I want to see you achieve your North Star too. So let me be a follower of your North Star while I'm leading in my area. Mm. And if we all do that, then we'll be we'll be in that world that we want to create. Yes, yes, I love that so much, Kristen. Um, so once I've defined my north star, and you know, for me, it could be the zero waste movement. Um, now I'm thinking, okay, what do I need to start? What do I need to create? But I loved your, I loved in the book where you kind of put a stop sign up or a break sign and said, hey, you don't always have to be the founder of something or go out and create this, this um, movement. There's usually an organization that is already working and has resources towards a uh, your North Star. So how does somebody go out and seek, what advice would you give them on seeking out or finding those organizations so they can align their North Stars together? Yeah, so my first step that I'm giving people lately is to find your local mutual aid group. Um, because your local mutual aid group is going to be involved in pretty much every issue that's impacting your local community. So whether that is food sick insecurity or gender issues or um, joblessness or homelessness, whatever the, the kind of local issues might be, you're going to find an in through that mutual aid society. And the thing I love about mutual aid groups, by the way, is that they, they take a very community oriented approach in this idea that we all have something to give and we always at some point need something back from the community. So it's a model based on mutual need and mutual aid. So I'm going to give what I can give and I'm going to take what I need to take and together we're going to figure it out. Um, so I, I highly recommend that as a place to start. And, and then and, from there- Do you just go, would you Google Austin mutual aid or- Yeah. How, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, I actually have, I live in New York City. Um, and there is a South Brooklyn mutual aid group, but there are mutual aid groups that are even more local than that. And there are some that are bigger across Brooklyn and across New York. Um, there are many that overlap. And so you can kind of just look for the volunteer opportunities within that, that align to your North Star. Um, but it is a great way to meet people who are working toward the same things that you are. Mm. And then from there, just start having conversations. I know we're, we're stuck in our apartments right now with COVID, but the more that you can align what you say with your North Star too, the more you are going to draw people to you who share similar ideas, even if their North Star isn't quite, isn't exactly the same, um, you'll connect and you'll, you'll create this network. Tammy likes to say, she's a very good networker. Um, and she likes to say that at networking events, it's so silly that we often introduce ourselves with, hi, I'm Kristen. And 
I'm the co-founder if she's the first or whatever it is that you happen to do for work because we should really be introducing ourselves with, you know, hi, I'm Justin and I'm really passionate about zero waste mm -hmm. and seeing kind of what we can build and the conversations we can have when we talk about the things that, that really matter to us, that really light us up. Anyway, I firmly believe in the power of conversation and the power of connections to bring you what you need. And so if you talk about what you find to be meaningful, if you talk about the kinds of opportunities that you are looking for, you're going to start to see connections being made. Um, and then lastly, you know, don't forget that even during a pandemic, we have access to Twitter and to YouTube and to books and to all of these incredible experts and thought leaders and advocates and, um, and people who have, you know, lived through and experienced various issues and various challenges in our world and seek out that information. It's, it's easy to find and you can learn so much and you can find new connections through all of it. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in, in the book, um, well, well, say I, I'm in New York City and, and my passion is international girls' rights. I find this perfect organization that lines up called She's the First. Uh, and I reach out to you and I say, hey, I really want to help. What can I do? And I love that in the book, um, you talk about this, this, um, this approach and you give a better approach to things, which you call your, I believe your impact pitch. Can you tell us uh, a, what an impact pitch is and how that could be a better alternative than what I just described? I would love to. So <laughs> as a nonprofit leader, one of the most frustrating things is to meet people who have all of the best intentions, who are, you know, are ready to go and who ask you to figure out how they can fit into your movement. Because, you know, if I'm receiving this email from you for the first time, I don't know. I have no idea what your skills are. I have no idea what you're good at. I can't, I don't know how much time you have to give. Do you mean online? Do you mean offline? What are you looking for? Like the amount of energy it takes for me to figure out how I can best plug you into this kind of puzzle of she's the first is overwhelming. And multiply that by the number of emails that you can you can guess an organization receives both locally and internationally from people looking to get involved. And it's it's impossible. But when a person writes to you and they say, hi, my name is Justin and I am really driven by the zero waste movement, for example. Um, but I love what she's the first is doing and I host a podcast. And I would love to use this platform to talk about the connections between girls' rights and climate change and a sustainable planet. Is that something that you would be interested in? Mm. All of a sudden, I know who you are. I know what drives you. I know what resources you have to give. And that might be, you know, I'm using this podcast as an example, but that might also be, I'm an accountant and I am great with analyzing data. And I would love to analyze your data for you. Do you have any projects I can be useful on? Um, it might be graphic design. It might be translation services. Whatever it is that you are good at that you have to give, tell them because then they're going to be able to take a look and say, oh, 
yes, actually, I have six data projects. Which one would you like to take on? Um, or I have this journal that we need um, translated into Spanish or, or what have you. Um, and it creates that click moment because you're showing me your whole puzzle piece. And so I can see exactly where in the organization or where in the movement that might fit, that might click in. So introduce yourself and why you care. Talk about what it is that you have to give and be really specific. Um, maybe that's just time and you can say, I have two hours per week or I have 10 hours per week or whatever it is. And then ask the question from there. You know, is this something that would fit your needs? Can I help you with this? And see what they say. And you know, you're not always going to be the right fit for their puzzle and that's okay, but it's going to get you a, a more positive answer more of the time on a consistent basis. Mm. Yeah, I think um, if people didn't listen to that, uh, rewind, I always find one little <laughs> nugget of wisdom in each episode I have. And I think that is so great. It's actually something I've been struggling with recently, just meeting people, especially through the podcast and just in general, I love to network. I meet so many great people and I want to figure out how to help them. And I always, I was always like, yeah, let me know if there's any way I can help. And it, you know, that never yeah. turned into something. And when I read that in the book, I was like, holy cow. So I made a document of all these little skills that I have everything from, oh my gosh. from transcribing to uh, Excel to whatever. And I made a, a big list. And now when I meet someone that I want to figure out how I can help them with further, I have a live Google doc that I share with them that says, Hey, here's some things I can do. This is how much time I'd like to dedicate just because I thought that was such a great playbook that you gave. I love that so much. And it reminds me actually, so in the book, it's currently it's, it's in there as an impact pitch. Originally we had written about creating an impact resume, which is exactly what you're describing, which is have a document ready to go that has all of the, all of the pieces on it that you are able to give. Um, and we ended up adjusting it just to make it more actionable to be to be around this kind of email or around this piece of communication that you send. But the idea that, you know, when we approach a job opportunity, for example, we go into that opportunity having thoroughly researched that organization or that company. We know what they're looking for. We know what we have that creates this kind of great overlap. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to like put that forward, we're going to make a, a pitch that's hard to turn down. And I think when you think about your volunteer work, that's really important. But even as you're saying, Justin, in a more casual environment where you just think someone is awesome and you want to help them, presenting them with what it is that you can do just makes it so much easier to find the click. Yeah. And um, you mentioned too, it's not always skills. It could be, um, it could be obviously money and it could be something like connections, which wasn't something I thought about either. It's presenting your, essentially your network to um, a founder or a nonprofit and saying, Hey, it looks like you might be struggling with this area. I know someone that might be able to help you. Would you like an introduction? Something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually speaking of donors, I want to dovetail off of impact for a minute to talk about a name, Tom Kearns. Um, yeah. I heard you mention his name as one of your first big donors. Um, and I wanted to ask the question, was there something about you and Tammy or she's the first that made him an invest in the organization? 
it was us <laughs> as people. Mm. Um, and I, I think that this is really important, which is that when you're asking someone to invest in you, whether it's in your company and your organization, you are asking them to invest in you. I mean, you need a good idea. You need all of those pieces, but ultimately it comes down to connections, right? It comes down to, does this person believe that you can do the job? Does this person believe in your leadership abilities um, or in your ability to, to deliver? And I think Tom saw that in us very early and the cause was really important to him as well. He's a strong feminist. He has three daughters who he raised to be feminists as well. Um, he's just someone who really, who really gets what we're trying to do. And he actually today, sort of 11 years later, he is the treasurer on our board. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Holy and we are God. never letting him go. He uh, and and this is the thing. He he sees where Shoes the First has a need, and so at that time, it was definitely an influx of cash, and he was luckily able to fulfill that. But over time, he has really functioned as a leadership mentor to us, as a financial mentor to us, as we were figuring out, you know, nonprofit finance law and and structure and all of these pieces. Um, and he continues to serve in that capacity now, making sure that our board of directors is fully up to date and understands the finances of the organization. Um, and I think that's the thing when you find the when you find the right click, it's often not a one-time commitment. It often ends up being a much longer-term relationship. It becomes part of who you are. Mm. Yeah, and I'm assuming he's one of those guys you look back on, and you're like this might not be the right verbiage, but forever indebted to him for taking oh, yeah. the risk and, and um, creating the opportunity and turning She's the First into um, what it could be and, and having those, you know, taking that chance on, on you and Tammy, which is awesome. Um, and, and I love you, you, you were talking in there about like, it, it almost felt a little overwhelming. You're talking about nonprofit law and all these things that you had to <laughs> learn and go. And you were what you said, 20 and 23, when you started the organization. And yeah. I actually really love the thread in the book. It's this underlying tone that, and I think there's actually a quote in there somewhere that mentions like, get started before you're ready. Like, especially, mm. especially with, with, you know, 20 somethings where we love to dream, we're huge dreamers, we see something and we create something. And um, I hear it often with with founders or with with um, people who've created companies or organizations or anything. It's like, you know, this thing that separates them from, from the dreamers isn't a great idea. It's the fact that they just got started. Um, yeah. And what, is there something that allowed you and Tammy to take that to, to look at it. Like you guys were both, I would say in really great pieces of your, or really great parts of your career doing amazing things. Yeah. I think Tammy was on the cover of a magazine. You were like this first like social media editor or something crazy like that, both working yeah. for really, uh, well-known magazines. Like what, like what allowed you guys to take the risk and create this nonprofit? Yeah, yeah. So when we when we started, as I mentioned, Tammy was just out of school and she she was the first social media editor at Seventeen okay. magazine. I was in school, but then after graduating, went to work in the magazine world, ended up eventually at Glamour running their scholarship program, the top mm. 10 college women. And we 
took that jump three years in after starting She's the First because we knew that if we wanted to take She's the First any further, we needed to dedicate our full time to it. We were already burning the candle at both. We were waking up in the morning and doing emails for She's the First. We were working for She's the First on our lunch break. We were leaving early to work on She's the First. Our social life was She's the First. Um, and we knew that if we really wanted to take it to the next level, we couldn't keep trying to squeeze it in mornings and weekends and nights. It, it wasn't going to work. And we we're both young enough to, you know, neither of us were married. We didn't have kids. I had school loans, but, you know, we, we figured that we could give it a shot and be okay. And so for me, that meant I had a certain number of months before we had to be viable, um, before I needed to, to find a job. And that, it was scary, but I had enough confidence in myself um, to know that I could get back on my feet, whatever that meant. Um, you know, whether that was, you know, I was working part-time retail as well on top of the magazine job. Like I had always worked hard and, and I knew that I would figure out a way to survive, but she's the first was not going to survive unless we both took the jump. So that's what we did. <laughs> we gave it a go. <laughs> and I think, you know, you say, um, we talk a lot about not letting perfect get in the way of better. Mm. We are both people who really like for things to be kind of perfect and zipped up tight. And the nature of being an entrepreneur, whether it's for nonprofit or for profit, is that like, you have to get things moving and you have to be okay with constantly learning. And I would say that it's, it is about just taking the jump and doing, going before you're ready, but it's also being willing to constantly learn from other people. Because if you don't do that, then you'll just go, you'll just do it, but it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to fail because if you just do it without having your, your full plan, it only works if you're willing to learn as you go. Mm. And so I think that's the, the one important piece. And I think that's what sets apart, frankly, successful entrepreneurs from people who start a lot of, um, who start a lot of different things and, and aren't able to make it stick. I think the thing Tammy and I both had was that we knew there was a lot we didn't know and we were so eager to learn it and so eager to, to bring others in who wanted to be part of She's the First, like Tom, um, but like many other mentors along the way for a lot of the other areas where we just were out of our depth. Um, so I think that's, a, that's really important, you know, get started before you're ready and keep learning along the way. Yeah, that's, that's two great pieces of advice. Um, well, before we conclude this, this conversation, the last big topic I want to talk about is this quadrant that you guys have in the book. Um, it's a two by two quadrant from uh, left to right. It is um, short term to long term. And then from top to bottom, you have positive to negative. So the top left quadrant is uh, short-term positive and the top right quadrant is long-term positive. And you separate these two and you call the short-term band-aids and you call mm -hmm. the long-term system solutions. Can you explain the difference between the two and um, give an example, any of the examples that you talked about in the book, um, kind of describing what might be the, the difference between a band-aid and a system solution? 
Yeah. So when we started to write this section, we had a we had a hard time kind of thinking about how to structure this and the way in which to present it. Because what we knew was that it's really important to highlight failures. It's really important to point out the ways in which impact can go wrong because often people associate positive intentions with positive impact. So if I want to create good and I am donating a coat to someone, then I've done good. But actually, if you haven't checked in to see whether or not that coat was useful, you have no idea what the impact of that coat was. Um, one of the examples in the, in the book that we talk about is a woman, Veronica Scott, who started a project actually giving out coats to people experiencing homelessness. And she had this incredible design where she created these coats that actually turned into sleeping bags so that people could stay warm if they didn't have somewhere indoors to go at night. And one day after she had been running this for, for a while, hundreds of coats given out, she hands one to a woman who looks back at her and says, I don't need a coat. I need a job. Mm. And it was this moment in which, you know, Veronica could have completely blown that off as someone just being ungrateful because here she is, she's dedicating all this time and energy and money to solving a problem. People are cold. But someone said to her, actually, no, that's not solving the problem. And that is the difference between a Band-Aid and a system solution. A Band-Aid solves or relieves pain in the moment. And so making sure that someone is warm when they otherwise wouldn't be, making sure that, which, honestly, is a life or death situation sometimes, depending on what city you live in. But it doesn't fix the root problem. Making sure that someone who doesn't have a house has access to a warm coat, the next day they still don't have access to a house. They still don't have the job that they need to give them the security to make sure that when that coat is busted, they can get a new one. So you relieve this problem for a small time, but you haven't fixed the problem. In nonprofit culture, a Band-Aid is often considered a bad thing. We talk about Band-Aids as if because they don't address this root cause of homelessness in this example, you might as well not do it. And that's because frankly, a lot of nonprofits are built around solving a Band-Aid problem. Food kitchens are a great example, right? They feed someone for a day, but they're not solving the joblessness or the income inequality or all of these issues that are contributing to it. Um, and so the idea that you would create a nonprofit not to fix the problem, but to kind of put a salve on the problem, a lot of people have an issue with that. And it is true, I think, to a certain degree, um, creating systems to fix a surface level problem is not what we should be doing. We need to be looking deeper. But as an individual, if you find a way to relieve pain and suffering in the short term, I am never going to tell you that that is a bad thing. If you can provide someone with a meal, if you can provide someone with shoes, if you can make somebody's life a little bit easier, I am all for that. And it's important, I think, because it's important for us to also see our impact and to see the change that we are making and to know that we are making a, a difference even for one person at a time. But what I will ask of you 
is that when you are when you are doing these band-aids when you are relieving short-term suffering that you can critically think about why that situation is happening in the first place why is it that in the united states we have food kitchens all year round permanent permanent structures to be able to feed people why does that exist and how can you, yes, volunteer at that food kitchen, you know, show up and do your shifts. How can you work to address the underlying issues? Are there ways that you can push, whether through your vote, through lobbying, through writing letters, you know, are there other impact actions that you can take to change the underlying issues of income inequality, of joblessness, of minimum wage, of take your pick to the underlying issue to that one. Um, and it's true for whatever issue you you work on. So for your zero waste, Justin, I'm sure there are a lot of band-aids actually in the, in the sustainability movement. Mm -hmm. um, and in a lot of ways, going zero waste as an individual is a band-aid because we're taking on the responsibility for ourselves and kind of, and changing our own footprint but the larger issue of the ways that our countries and our governments are treating the planet, that's still there. And so I would never tell you and I would never tell anyone not to do the band-aid because participating in a movement like the zero waste movement is meaningful and it changes the way that you relate to the planet and it creates a positive change. But I would ask that you also look at what are the ways that you you can agitate for that longer term change. Even if it's writing one letter to your local representatives every quarter, um, participating in a climate march, you know, whatever, whatever the kind of bigger thing might be, because it's that combination that's going to allow you to feel good about it in the short term and to know that in the long term, you are working toward a bigger sustainable movement of change. Yeah, and this brings up this question I have for you that you address in the book as well is um, overcoming the shitters or the uh, mm -hmm. what about. So, um, you know, the, well, you should be, you know, working on changing the policy versus avoiding, um, you know, using plastics, whatever it may be. Um, or for you guys, it's the, but what about probably the big one, boys? You probably get that mm -hmm. a lot, but what about boys? What is the response to the shitters and the whatabouters? So it's really important to remember that we are all learning. And if we're doing this right, we are all constantly learning. And sometimes we're going to misstep and sometimes um, we're going to see other people misstep. And I think that there are, it's really important to remember that we're all learning for two reasons. One, because it's never okay to shame one, shame someone or to tell them what they should be doing as if, as if you are the ultimate authority and you want to make them feel bad about what they're doing because no one ever changes out of shame. I, shame does not work. And you see this a lot in our current kind of cancel culture, this idea that if you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing, um, that you are no longer on my team. So Justin, I think we've established that we have kind of uh, super similar values. I think that there's kind of this vision of the world that we're both working toward in our own ways. If I shame you 
because I think that you've said the wrong thing. Maybe you've used the wrong word or you've done something that I disagree with. And I say, forget it. Justin is no longer part of this movement. Eventually, I'm going to be standing on the island of my movement all by myself. <laughs> because we're never all going to say the right thing at the, at the right time and do the right thing. We are all learning. On the other end, if I say something and Justin, you say to me, you know what, Kristen, actually, that word is really hurtful and here's why. Or that action isn't particularly helpful and you know here's an article that I read recently and what do you think and you invite me into a conversation then there's room for us to learn together and to grow together and to keep the movement moving forward right mm -hmm. so I think the first thing is that it's really important that we remove shame from the equation and that we talk to one another but that said when somebody comes at you and they're like Justin why are you working on all of this like zero waste lifestyle stuff like you there are so many bigger issues people are suffering right now why are you not working on hunger look at all these people in your city you live in austin look at all of the homelessness in austin right now you should really be working on that you have all of these resources at your disposal my suggestion for that is that you ask that person why they aren't working on it mm. Because I really, truly believe that if we all just work toward our own North Stars and we are conscious of all these other issues that intersect, we are going to, we are going to reach that goal. We are going to hit that eventual milestone. And there isn't room for anyone to say to us, don't focus there, focus over here. If you are so invested in that, great, you go do it. You know, you go work on homelessness in Austin and I will be so happy to show up at your event and support you in doing that. Because you know, no one can tell you what you are most passionate about. And the thing is that ultimately, if you're working on an issue area that is not personal to you, that doesn't motivate you personally, you're not gonna sustain that over the course of your life. It's just not gonna happen. So yeah. you can and tell the, the shooters where to go. <laughs> and, and yeah, I've realized the the change, the real change makers out there aren't asking that of other change makers. It's typically mm -mm. people that, that aren't doing anything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you're never so, going to see someone who's working hard at their own note star turning to you and being like, you know what, Justin, <laughs> you're not, you're focusing in the wrong area because they're working on their own thing. They understand the importance of having your own North Star and, and working toward that and working together. Mm. Well, Tammy the, or um, Kristen, this has been an mm -hmm. awesome conversation. Yeah, the two of you are like the same person. Um, but uh, <laughs> what what do you hope that people take away from this book? They, um, I, I want you to tell them where to find the book, and then you know, if if someone picks it up, what do you what do you hope that they're getting from it? Yeah, so you can tag us. Uh, we're using the hashtag book, hashtag impact book. I am at CJ Brandt and my co-author Tammy is at Tammy Timmits. Um, and you can buy the book, learn more about the book, get our worksheets for the book at planyourimpact.com. And I hope that when readers pick up this book, what they walk away with is this idea that no one can do everything. So let go of the shame, let go of the guilt, give yourself the same grace you would give to people you love. But everyone can do something. And that's what I hope that you do after reading this book is that you have the courage to take that first step, 
Or if you've been doing this for a while, you have the courage to take that 110th step into something new and different and bigger um, to create impact. So not, you know, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. That's awesome. So my, my typical last question um, revolves around habits and practices you wish you would have started earlier. Um, and I've actually heard you answer this question and your response was listen more often. So my question is, would that still be your response? And if so, what did you mean by listen more often? Oh God, um, I don't even remember answering that. And I'm just thinking, wow, what a wise, what a wise answer <laughs> that was. <laughs> past self. Um, I, I would agree with that uh, piece of wisdom. And I, I think that's because particularly as a young leader, it's so easy to get caught up in wanting to be right. And especially in the, the kind of activism community, there is a lot of kind of elbow jostling to be right. Mm. And to be the one who kind of points out the the inequality or points out the injustice and, and does it first. And I think it is really important to understand deeply where others are coming from so that you can connect and you can bring them along for the ride. Um, I think that I've often been quick to write people off, or at least I was when I was younger. And what I've learned as I've gotten older is that Often, if you dig far enough, you will find that, especially the people who are in your regular circles, you know, there are a lot of values that you agree on. And if you can find the values that you agree on, you can talk about almost anything. And you can often convince them about your viewpoint <laughs> or have really engaging conversations. And I think just spending more time genuinely listening and trying to instead of trying to convince someone or trying to get your words in, I think ultimately it makes you a wiser person. It helps you to choose your words more carefully and you learn more because you learn that you can learn something from everyone. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's definitely something I've been learning over the last four to six months as we went through the elections and there was such polarizing sides to everything. Um, I think listen more often is a, a great piece of advice for not just the 20 somethings, but for everybody out there. So Kristen, well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I hope people connect with you and she's the first and go and buy impact. Uh, and I really appreciate you taking so much time. Justin, thanks so much. This is so much fun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If this episode brought value to you, share it with a friend and show love on social. You can tag me at Justin Lee Peters. The link to the show notes is in the episode description, and we'll include all the resources we talked about today. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time in the Sandbox.